you all. We're uh, continuing our series in Genesis, and we're transitioning today from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. Uh, and a couple of things before we read together, I just want to kind of explain. Uh, I know Genesis raises all kinds of questions. We did a Q&A a couple weeks ago. Uh, sometimes when people read Genesis 1 and 2, they have two questions. One is, are these separate creation accounts? And uh, that's a really good question. They sound really different. And so... Um, just an illustration of this, of kind of what's going on. So Genesis 1 reads like super structured and formal, and it's a poem. We talked about forming and filling. Genesis 2 is super in the, in the, the weeds. Uh, it's very intimate. And uh, it can feel like we're reading two separate things, but it's really like two perspectives on the same event. So if you imagine a car wreck, uh, when there's a car wreck, the officer will show up at the scene and kind of take down some notes. And uh, there's a couple of different people who look at a car accident and they look at it from very different perspectives. One would be a witness to a car accident who the officer would interview and they would say what they saw from their point of view, usually like on the street in the car behind them. And they're describing something on the ground. The other person who's very interested in the car accident is, of course, the insurance adjuster, right, is <laughs> trying to figure out who's going to pay for this. And both of those people are speaking of a car accident from different perspectives for different purposes. And, and the witness is speaking about what they saw just to relate that to an officer. The insurance adjuster is trying to like look at this from a, a high-up perspective of like, the timing of the light and the traffic patterns of the day, and then trying to assess responsibility. In the same way, Genesis 1 and 2 are really two perspectives on the same thing. One is a 30,000-foot view from Genesis 1. One's a sidewalk view from Genesis 2. And they're really describing, in a lot of ways, the same thing, two different perspectives. The other thing that people wonder sometimes when we read Genesis 1 and 2 is like, Genesis 2, is this... This feels like mythology or something, like God's forming and blowing in the breath of life. What, what is this? And as we read here in just a second, you're going to see the author in Genesis 2, Moses, is trying to help us understand that what we're reading is, in fact, history and not fantasy. You know how if you watch a Star Wars movie, the beginning of every Star Wars movie has this one line across the screen. A long time ago in a galaxy, right? And you know from that, suspend your disbelief, everybody. But when we read Genesis 2, we're going to read about a creation that takes place between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, which you can find in modern Iraq. Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia, where this took place, means between two rivers. Now, we don't know the names or the location. We know the names, but not the locations of the other two that are listed there. But what's intended is we're reading something that's meant to say, no, this really happened. We're, we're treating this as history, not fantasy. So we're going to jump in, and we're reading a big chunk of end of Genesis 1 and a lot of Genesis 2. I know some of you are like, what's the deal? I mean, James preached last week on three verses, and Bradford's got us reading half of Genesis. I know. Next week, I'll do four verses, okay? I'll, I'll come back to normal. Um, but we're going to read this, and since it's heavy lifting, we're going to try this. The first service did this really well, so I, I believe in you, right? So we're going to have um, women, we're going to ask you to read the even number verses, 
And we're going to ask the men to read the odd number verses. That's right. Counting on a Sunday. We can do it, people. So let's try this together. First service did it really well. Let's see how y'all can do. You ready? Three, two, one. No bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not yet to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and Ox are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, 
because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right, give yourself applause. Well done with counting and reading. Y'all could almost go to first grade now. We're doing great. So, um, you know, in the musical Les Mis, the protagonist, Jean Valjean, sings this song, Who Am I? And it's this point where he is wrestling with both his identity and his integrity. You know, it's the part where you go, na 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 you know, it's like, who am I? Right, you can picture Hugh Jackman, Wolverine, singing this song. Um, and I, I want to offer that song to you as sort of a theme for today's sermon. Because I think we're all singing that song all the time. To grow up in America is to be always trying to figure out who you are, your identity, what makes you, you. We're, we're sort of on this never ending identity quest. And this is really unique in history. 500 years ago, uh, no matter where you're born, most of the structures in your society answered that question for you. So let's say you grew up as a peasant farmer. Pretty likely you're going to be a peasant farmer uh, or you're going to marry a peasant farmer. Uh, the institutions of your society are pretty defined. So you're raised in a village where you're going to grow up and probably be married and buried according to the customs and the religion of that village. Things are pretty entrenched and decided for you. Now, no more. Right? We live in a time where you get to answer the questions for yourself. What do I want to do with my life? And where do I want to live? And who do I want to be with? And those questions are really wide open. And that's both really encouraging and great, and also exhausting and confusing. That's a lot for us to figure out. And, and that, that has huge implications for how we think about ourselves. It helps us, it makes us sort of create what I'll call a plastic identity. It feels kind of brittle. We're not sure if this is really who we are. And we're always sort of trying to figure out if this is really me and if this is really right. Um, my wife shared this article with me a couple years ago by the historian and uh, psychologist Philip Cushman that characterized this modern identity quest as the empty self. Like we have a, a self that we're trying to fill up all the time. We're trying to figure out who we are and construct and figure out how to answer those questions about who am I, right? Like trying to answer that all the time. There's a great book that just came out this past year by Carl Truman, professor of uh, biblical religious studies at Grove City College, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which I highly commend to you. It's about kind of the history of how the self came to be understood as it is today, and then also sort of the pressure that that brings to us. You know, there are lots of answers to the question, who am I, that are around us all the time, swirling around us all the time. You can answer this question, who am I? Am I a collection of my experiences? Am I my emotions or what my emotions tell me? Am I uh, a product just of my upbringing or a victim of my upbringing? But how do I answer those questions? Who am I? This is the main question that's going on behind all discussions around identity and gender 
and sexuality. And this is a huge thing that we're all trying to answer all the time. And the Bible's answer, of course, to that question, who am I, is this phrase, image bearer. Or in Latin, maybe you've heard imago dei, image of God. You know, this is the foundation for a biblical anthropology. And I know some of you are like, biblical what? Biblical anthropology. Biblical anthropology is simply what, what does God say about what it means to be a person? Now, if you look over the last, the history of the church over centuries, you see that the church is always trying to answer some big questions. First five centuries of the church, they were wrestling the question like, how is God a trinity? How's God three in one? And they're also trying to answer the questions of Christology. How is Jesus both fully God and fully human? In the Middle Ages, we were wrestling with the question of ecclesiology. What is the nature and function of the church during the Reformation? Soteriology. What's the nature? How are we saved? What does that mean? Uh, In the 20th century, the question was pneumatology. What's the nature and function of the Holy Spirit? In the 21st century, I can guarantee you this is the question. Anthropology. What does it mean to be a person? And do we know how to answer that question anymore? What does it mean? What does God say about what it means to be a person? And here's my contention. I give the modern church a D in being able to answer that question. In fact, I give the modern church all Ds. In fact, this morning, I'm going to give the modern church 10 Ds as my outline for this sermon. Yes? A 10-point sermon this morning. Now, if you're a seminary student, never do this to your congregation, okay? Never do this. These are nice people, and we won't be here that long. I'm going to move through them, but... I want you to remember, to remember these things. So 10 Ds that we get with regard to, um, to our, our, our outline. So first one this morning, I'm going to have them up on the screen. You ready? First one, dirtling. Uh, you weren't expecting that one, were you? <laughs> dirtling. Okay, so what, why do I say that? Um, because in Genesis 2, God makes a man, and this is what we call this guy. We call him Adam, but that's not his name. You know, we call his wife Eve, Um, but Adam isn't his name. That's not exactly what the text says. The text says, calls him the Adam. And Adam means made from dirt. So the made from dirt. The earthling, I like the dirtling. That's, I got that from a commentator this week. I love that. Uh, But it means you're made from dust. This is who you are. Now, why do we need to know this? Why does that matter to us? Because you aren't God. And this is what's so freeing about this. If you are in the quest for, to fill up the empty self, you no longer have the pressure of having to be the center of the universe. You're made from dirt. Your body will go back to dirt. You know, you, the pressure's sort of off you having to make everything work in the world. You know, this world doesn't have to be about you. That's good news for us. All right, number two, you ready? Who am I? I have dignity. I have dignity. This, here's how God describes his image bearers, he, how he honors them. He honors them as people who have inherent dignity. Case in point, again, in Genesis 2, the woman is not given a name. She's not called Eve in Genesis 2. She's called Isha in Hebrew. Now, a man, man in Hebrew is Ish. Woman in Hebrew is Isha. 
And that's really just a definition of who they are as a person. It's not until Genesis 3 that she is named, given a name, Eve, which means mother, which describes not who she is, but what she can do, what she's able to do. She's able to produce, to bear children. So who are you? You are made with inherent dignity. And God defines you not because of what you can produce, but ultimately just who you are. You're an image bearer of God. And that's plenty. You know, we live in a world that defines people by what they can do, how much money they can make, how valuable they are to society. That's a result of the fall. God values us for who we are just as people made in His image. Inherent dignity. Now, let's test this out, a couple of test cases of what happens in our culture when we get this wrong. If you have an empty self-mentality, if you have an empty self-mentality, you'll make life's meaning and purpose about what you can produce and what you can do rather than who you are. We do this all the time. Think about, let's, let's take this um, intelligence. Our world highly values intelligence. Like Smarts, they really, really matter. And I guess being smart is good, but there is nothing in the Scripture that seems to value high intelligence. You know, if we're looking through God's lens at the world, we see that the person with special needs and the genius both have value and dignity. Both are equal image bearers of God. God says, I'm about both of them, equally beautiful to God. What about a person who's uh, young and attractive. Man, we love young and attractive in this culture. We will spend lots of money to look and seem young and attractive. And I guess the Bible values that somewhat. I mean, the Bible mentions Esther was beautiful, David was handsome. Uh, but that's not what gives us value and worth, is it? I mean, God says who you are, not what you can produce. You know, we have inherent indignity no matter what we look like. No matter if you showed up at church this morning and you have a pimple, if you are 15 to 50 pounds over your BMI, inherent dignity. Isn't that good news? That's how God sees. That's what God values. Like, you know, think about the way that we value. This is empty. We have, we're so surrounded with empty self-orientation toward these things. Inherent dignity. Number three, who am I? Who am I? Right. Different. Different, different from all the animals. Yes, you know, animals and people, both made on the sixth day of creation. But different. Notice how different. Genesis 2, God shapes the dirtling. God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. This is really different from anything else we see being created. This is, there's a unique, substantive quality, substantive quality or difference that God has given his image bearers different from all other animals in this world. You know, a lot of theologians would say, okay, that's maybe our ability to think, our ability to reason. Even in our scientific classification of human, homo sapiens means thinking, intelligent being, wise human. But, you know, theologians have described this other ways. Our ability to appreciate beauty, our ability to love. Like this, this, there's a substantive quality. There's a difference 
from us from all the other animals. Now, why is that so important? Well, a couple of reasons. What, you know, 21st century America, you, you can kill a, an eagle egg, you can kill a baby eagle, and you'll go to prison and pay a stiff fine for that. You kill a baby human, that is not the same. The Bible says, no, we're not just, we're, we're different. We're not just animals. You're not just a primate who wears clothes. Yes, there's a lot of biological overlap with humans and primates. But there is a substantial difference. You know, if you look at, if you, we've talked about the days of creation and how you think about that. I mean, if you're a person who's like, yeah, I believe in some, in microevolution, you still have to say, God stopped, stepped in here. Something happened that's really, really different for you versus monkeys. You're not just a primate with clothes on. And this is really important because how you think about who you are really determines how you think about what you do. You know, if we listen to the creation accounts where God says different, that means something big. It means you don't live by your appetites and impulses. You're not just an animal who does whatever you feel like. Right? You, you're different, so live differently. All right, four here. Who am I? All right, who am I? Different with differences. Different with differences. Genesis 1.27, this passage is really clear. God makes both the man and the woman in his image. Both the man and the woman in his image. Equally image of God. That's really striking. If you read a lot of the text in the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia, Sumeria, Egypt, Egyptian, their creation accounts, this is what you find out about woman. Uh, she was made of a different substance than the man. Or she was made for the man, to serve the man. She was made only to make little more men. That's what she was made for, but not, not, not Genesis. This is telling us that God had a very different purpose. God says both man and woman in his image. In fact, you know, uh, the statement about God making the woman, it's the first time in Genesis when it says, not good, right? Everything else before this says, it was good, it was good, it was good. And now it says, not good. There's something in the creation of Ha'adam that's incomplete. We're not done yet. Something else is needed. So we pick this up, you know, in, in verse 20, looking around, you know, uh, Adam's doing his work of taxidermy, naming all the animals, He's trying to figure out, like, okay, what are we going to call this one and this one and this one? And it says, you know, there was not found a suitable helper. A lot of times we'll use the word help meet, which has kind of negative connotations in English, unfortunately, like daddy's little helper. But the word there is ezer Kinegdo. I know you don't, you don't need to know Hebrew, but like, this is fascinating. Okay, can I nerd with you for a sec? Ezer means helper, which is a word that's used over and over. God uses that of himself. But kinegdo means opposition. The helper who opposes. Isn't that fascinating? She is made like Adam, like Ha'adam, right? Like him, but different. There's opposition. There's tension here. What, what's being communicated to us in this? That him, Adam made in God's image, there was something incomplete in that. And there was need for one who would be like, but a little different. 
there's needed some tension in this, this scene, a little tension in this relationship. That, that there was something, even in uh, her being made from Adam's side, she's like him, she's of the same substance with him, and yet she's different, and that's good. That's a good thing. In other words, woman is the part that's missing in him. You know, he's incomplete. Only when male and female are together, and I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking very generally. Male and female together, we image God. This is why we place such a high value of men and women serving together in our church, working together in our church, trying to get space for leadership in our church. Like this really matters, together imaging God. Again, what do we learn? Who am I? Right? Different with differences. And this is so important. There's a complementarity to the two genders, and those are good. You know, we live in a culture that says, hey, gender is what you make it. You know, your sexuality, it, it comes in whatever form you want it to. Binary, fluid, um, sorry, um, bisexual, fluid. The, the, those categories are ones that are outside of what God says in his word. And one of the, you know, the, the group of people who I feel like are most struggling and wrestling with like, this is where the front lines of this whole thing is going on with regard to gender and sexuality is middle school. You know, so many middle schoolers are coming out as bisexual, changing their names, struggling with identity. Who am I? And God has said, no, I've made you this way, male and female, and this is good. And you can rest in what I say about who you are. That is such a gift. Do not have to figure that out. Fifth, who am I? Who am I? Dependent. Dependent. God designed us as relational beings designed for relationship with God and for one another. We're designed for relationship with Him and for one another. In the next chapter, in chapter 3, we're going to read about how um, they listened for God walking in the cool of the day in the garden. And the implication is they were used to walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden. They were used to being with God. And they're designed to not only, we're designed not only for relationship as image bearers with Him, vertical, but also horizontal. We're made for relationship with one another. This is one of the things that separates us from all other creatures. We're designed for dependent relationship. You know, this has huge implications for us, thinking about your faith and why it matters whether you're a Christian or not. See, believing in God is not just an elective that you can choose to take or leave in this life. And it's not just a product of growing up in a Christian home. Uh, the reality is all of us image bearers are made in God's image, put in His world. And so whether or not you have parents who are believers or not, that says something about what you're made for. And if you reject the Christian faith or push it away, you're not just rejecting the faith of your parents, you're, ref you're rejecting the way that you were designed. You're designed to be in relationship, dependent relationship with the God of the universe. That's how he's made you. That's not just enough course because you grew up in a Christian home. So like you rejecting that is actually defying your design. It's like, let's pretend you're an ice cream truck. 
Okay, you're an ice cream truck. What's an ice cream truck designed for? Delivering frozen treats. It's so great to be an ice cream truck, right? But you want to drive over to the airport because you want to fly. You're like, I, I feel like I'm just on the inside made to fly. No, you get out on the runway and you keep going. You're just going to hit the end of the runway because you're made for dependent relationship on the ground. <laughs> you're not made to fly, right? Like God has designed you like this, designed for dependence, Number six, you ready? Who am I made? Who am I? For, made for dominion. Made for dominion. Dominion is a word that describes our function. And this is over and over in this passage. You read in uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. He made the, the humans to rule over. Remember, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. This doesn't mean that we get to trash the environment. That's not what's in view in this. What's in view with that language is stewardship management. God has designed his image bearers for ruling in his stead. Now, this is where this comes in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, this is how a conquering king would rule a nation. He would either set up statues of himself all over the conquered territory or place a vice regent or governor over that territory. And both meant to communicate the same things. Both of them were viewed as, actually, that's the ruler in small form in this place. That ruler is, by that presence of the statue, reflecting his image in this place and saying, this, I, this is ruling over this territory, or the governor that he established, ruling over the territory. And it's dead. so much so that if you deface the statue, you know, like, you're dead. They kill you for that because you are striking against the ruler. So here's what God does. And think about how they thought about this in this context. God is separate from the creation. And he puts an image bearer in this world to rule on his behalf, to represent him, to have governance over all those things on his behalf. You're made to be in some ways, extending God's rule. A couple years ago, my wife wrote a paper on this for class, and I love how she put it. She says, kin and king were made to be like, related to God, kin in his likeness, and king to exercise dominion or authority over whatever part of the, this world that God has put you in. So whether that's a, you're a stay-at-home parent, or whether that's you're taking classes at university right now, whether you're in real estate, whether you work in a lab, wherever you are, God has put you in those places as his imago dei. You know, who are you? You are an image bearer of God. You're like the little statue or the governor that he has set up in that place to represent him. This is so important because who I am, if I understand that right, then I can understand what am I supposed to do? You know, God gives you lots of freedom to choose a job. Pick, up, pick whatever is according to your passions. But in all those, the vocation's really the same. Kin and king, exercising his dominion. All right, you hanging in okay? All right, number seven, we're moving faster. Who am I? This is God's delight. God's delight. What does God say at the end of day six after he creates the humans? Remember, it's like, good, 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 
good. What does he say at the end of day six? No, he says, flipping awesome. That's the Jeff Bradford translation of that, right? Like, this is amazing. And he's not saying that because it's like, yeah, man, I crushed that. I did a really good job with it. Of course God crushed that. He crushed the whole of the creation thing. Like, that's not news. What he's saying is, I delight in this in a particular way that's different from every other part of my creation. I delight in this human that I have made. See, one of the problems with reading Genesis 1 and 2 as if it's a lab report on the creation of the world is that you miss the actual point. It's a love story. God creates His image bearers. And He's like, flipping awesome? I love this. And He takes His delight, humanity, and puts them in the place called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. He takes the pinnacle of creation, whom He delights in, and puts them in the place of His delight, just for their enjoyment. I was at a coffee shop last week, not very far from here, I saw someone wearing this trucker cap, and on the front of it said, God's favorite. And I looked at it, and I was like, man, that's presumptuous. And then I was like, no, actually. That's right. I mean, if I could imagine Adam and Eve in the garden, they're naked except for the trucker cap that says, <laughs> God's favorite. <laughs> right? Delight. In Psalm 8, which was our, our call to worship this morning, we read this. What does God love most in His creation? What does He delight in the most? People. David's like waxing eloquent. You know, he's like, when I consider the works of your hands and the stars and the mountains and uh, all the things you've set in place, which is the stuff we like too, he moves from there to talking about people. He's like, but what is man? I like the beach and the mountains. That's what David's saying. He's like you. That's where I want to go. I want to go see beach and mountains and national parks. But he's like, you, God, you delighted in humans. They are the pinnacle of your creation. You, you, you made them him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. See, what does God love? What is most beautiful to him? People made in his image. Remember uh, planting a church in Philadelphia? One of the guys who was a mentor, uh, mentor for me and the other guy I planted with said, you know, um, we love to be out in the, in the wild. We love parks and ocean and mountains. What does God love? God loves cities. You see, at the end of the book, it's this huge city God's building. Revelation 21, 20 and 21. God's got this huge city that he's building because what's beautiful to him are his image bearers. That's what he delights in. All right, you ready? Eight and nine, we'll do them real quick, together. Who am I? Diminished, but not destroyed. Okay, let's talk about what that means. Who am I? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at Genesis 3, the fall. And, and while in the fall, the image bearers lost so much, we didn't lose the image entirely. It's diminished, but it's not destroyed. You know, our confessional documents say it this way. We were created in original righteousness and holiness. Of course, we lost those things, but we didn't lose all of what it means to be an image bearer. That's still preserved. So if you look at this list and you're like, who am I? You're going to sing some Jean Valjean this afternoon. You can still sing these things of yourself. I'm a dirtling. 
I'm made with dignity. I'm different with differences. I'm made for dependence. I'm made for dominion. I'm His delight. I am diminished. The image in me is diminished, but it's not destroyed. These things are still true for me today. This is you. This is who you are. You want to know who you are in the morning? You want to wake up in the you want to wake up and like be like, I don't need this cup anymore or this pitcher. Remember, this is who you are. And you know, finally, number 10, you know, what does this all do? It directs us to Jesus. And, and that's outside the scope of this passage for this morning. We'll cover that next week for sure. Okay, don't worry. But all of this connects us to Jesus, who is the ultimate image bearer, who is the second Ha Adam, who comes to do what Adam failed to do, right? It directs us to Jesus. More on that next week. But here's what I want to get to this morning. This morning, I want to invite you to throw away the pitcher and the cup. Right? Like, we're so exhausted from this. And, and good Christian people who know the truth and live out this stuff and love Jesus, we're also just like the rest of the world doing this all the time. Empty self. What do I need to be, feel good about myself again? You know, God has already said it. And my invitation to you this morning is that you would rest in what God says. You don't need this anymore. Rest in who He says you are. Now let me finish the sermon this way because I can't, we can't finish right here. We've got to ask one more question. So we can't answer the question, who am I? Without also asking the question, who are they? Who are they? Now, you know what I mean by they. We use they all the time, especially when we watch the news or on social media. We complain about they and them. You know, what they're doing, how they are ruining our way of life, what they are up to in this world. <laughs> and let's just not pretend, okay? You know, like, well, sometimes we like to pretend in church. I, don't, I just think church is not a place for pretend. So um, everybody has a they. Let's just be honest. Everybody has a they. Somebody that we love to hate. Somebody we love to blame for what's going on in our culture. But see, we have to paint with the same brush if we're actually going to say we believe in a biblical anthropology. We have to paint they in the same way we paint I. So let's ask the question, who are your they? Is it the gay community? I mean, is that your they? Who are they? Made in the image and likeness of God. Is it um, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and the Republicans? Is that your they? Who are they? Pinnacle of creation. Uh, what about Joe Biden and AOC and the Democrats? Is that your they? Who are they? God's delight. Is it, uh, maybe it's, People in your class at school, maybe you have a bully that you're dealing with. Is that your they? Who, who are they? They are the pinnacle of creation. Is it uh, your boss, your coworkers, are you tired of your job? I mean, who's not tired of their job? Many of you have told me this right now. It's a hard time. Maybe is that your they? I mean, who are they? They have the fingerprints of God on their very soul. Is it wealthy people who are in the highest tax bracket who are ruining everything? Is that your they? Who are they? Likeness of God. 
What about poor people who are taking advantage of the system? Is that your they? Who are they? Image bearers of God. Is it CRT professors at liberal universities? <laughs> Is that your they? Who are they? Imago Dei. See, who are your they? You know, if we're going to believe in a biblical anthropology, we've got to use the same brush we paint everybody. We've got to see the world the same way that God sees you. You know, this world is, yes, it, it would be great if we had a lot more Christians who could define a biblical anthropology. That would be great. And, and it'd be really great if we had Christians who could define a biblical anthropology and who got rid of the empty self paradigm. And that, that would be even better. But you know what we really need? is Christians who have a biblical anthropology, who've thrown away the cup, and yet apply the same orientation that they, of image bearer to themselves that they do to everybody around them. The people that they watch on TV, the people they disagree with, the people who are their neighbors who drive them nuts, the people who they work with, the people who are in politics. You know, seeing everyone, this, this is how God made the world. Imago Dei. Remember the Imago Dei this week. You know, I, it is the highest, one of the highest compliments you could pay somebody else. Image of God. I could th only think of one higher compliment than you could pay somebody besides Imago Dei, image of God, and that's this, child of God. And my prayer is that the children of God in this room, watching on TV, outside under the tent, the people that are part of this church would begin to see with new eyes the way God sees and therefore love with open hearts the way God loves. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. There is nothing like your word. And yet these words are hard for us. They challenge and convict. They cut. Lord, we want, want to hear and long to hear how much we are your delight. Lord, how, how you've made us that we might rest in that. And Lord, we pray, though, this morning for grace to also apply that to people around us, people in our church, people in our family, people in our work, people in our schooling, people in our neighborhoods, and people who are in a culture. We pray, Father, that you would help us to live into and believe all that you say, Lord, that we are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.